say, right? Um, I'll pray and we'll get right into the message. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for everything you've done for us. I thank you for um, allowing us to come here together. I thank you for allowing us to be in this country where we can praise you and worship you unashamedly without fear of persecution. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Last week, we talked about the fact that we are at war. Um, We are at war with sin. Now, it's easy for us as Christians to really focus on other people's sin. Um, It's easy for me to focus on Kaylee's sin because it's, it's comfortable because I don't have to deal with my sin. But... Not only are we at war with sin in general, but we're at war with our own sin, right? There's a war that takes place on the inside of all of us, right? The Bible says that once we are saved, that we are immediately saved from the consequences of sin, right? What are the consequences of sin? The Bible says for the wages of sin is death. Now, there are two kinds of death in the Bible. There is the physical death. And then there's what we call the spiritual death. The Bible says in Revelation, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Once we are saved, once we accept Jesus as our only means of salvation, right, we we go from relying on our good deeds to completely and totally relying on what Jesus did for us on the cross, the Bible says that the consequences of our sin are erased. Um, that happens in a moment. That happens in an instance. Uh, one moment we are on our way to a godless eternity. The next moment, our destiny is changed. Next, the next moment, our, our, our destination has changed, right? Now, most of the time when we talk about salvation, this is what we talk about. This is what we're referring to. However, as we've mentioned in times past, there is another aspect of salvation, right? Not only does God save us from hell, he saves us, however, progressively from the power of sin in our lives. Yes, after we get saved, we have been given a new nature, right? The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, right? Furthermore, the Bible also says that we are to put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after him that created him, right? We, we get saved and we're told to put on the new man. However, we still have to deal with the old man, right? The way that we put on the new man is by dealing with the old man. That is the old nature. All of us um, have to understand that there is still a part of us that is inclined to sin, right? One of the reasons why we fail as Christians is we fail to acknowledge that we have an enemy that lives on the inside. Does it make sense? Um, Last week, I gave the illustration of um, MJ challenging Randy Strait to a fight. Like MJ walks up to Randy Strait and says, look here, stretch. I'm tired of you flaunting. I'm tired of you flaunting your lankiness in my face. I'm going to take you down a peg or two. 
Now, who's going to win that fight? Well, obviously MJ. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Randy is a big guy. MJ is a, is a little person. Now, the, the only way for Randy to lose that fight is to fail to admit that he is in a fight. If you refuse to acknowledge that you are at war, you will lose that war. Right? The same is true with our battle with the old nature. If we fail to realize that we have a part inside of us that just wants dark things, we will lose that fight. This intuitively makes sense to all of us. We know from observing ourselves that we are capable of some pretty messed up things. We know that we are thinkable, that we are capable of thinking some pretty bad things. It's like when those little bad kids run around in Walmart and they're causing a ruckus and you want to trip them, right? Well, like not me, but like Brother Scott was explaining to me that he has that. Right? Those are your kids, but you just want to walk over and just spank them, right? Like this is, this is how you parent, but you can't do that. But you think about doing it, don't you? That's dark. That's messed up. Right? Why do you think things like that? Because you have a sin nature. Um, I can't blame the devil for my sin. I can't say, um, as Skip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. Right? The reason I still sin is me. Right? There's a part of me that likes sin. The Bible says that sin is fun for a season. I think a lot of times what, what preachers get up to do is they get up here and they lie to you about sin. They say, you don't want to go out and sin. That's not any fun. Like, according to Kathy Hill, sin is a lot of fun. Like, I'm kidding. Of course, of course sin is fun. Otherwise, people wouldn't do it. Right? When you look at people out there running the streets, running wild, it looks like they're having a good time. But the Bible says it's fun for a season. Guess what? It gets old. It gets old quick. Now, we talked about last week about how we deal with this aspect of our nature, right? How do we deal with the dark side? Uh, we talked about the fact that it is our job, as the Bible says, to mortify the deeds of the flesh, Romans chapter 8. Um, we use for our outline... Um, a sermon by John Owen, who was a um, Puritan preacher in the 1600s. Now, John Owen talked about this concept of mortification, right? Um, the way, when we mortify the deeds of the flesh, what he means by that is we need to kill. Um, he used the, the Bible uses the idea of mortification or killing the old nature as a metaphor, right? We're not supposed to literally go at ourselves with a knife, obviously. Um, this is a metaphor. He says, to kill the old nature, to mortify, to kill a man is, or any other living thing, is to take away the principle of all of his strength and vigor and power so that he cannot act or exhort or put forth any acting of his own. In other words, we actively seek to destroy the part of us that wants to do bad things. Now, we use... 
we, we all hear the illustration of, 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 the Indian, of the Indian with the two dogs, right? Um, the, the Indian says there, there are two things. There are two um, natures inside of all of us. There is a good nature and a bad nature, and he represents it as two dogs, right? And the, and the person asks, well, who wins? And he says, well, whoever you feed the most, right? We've all heard that illustration. However, John Owen uses the language of war, right? He says, not only should we seek to starve out the bad side of us, we should actively seek to persecute and to destroy that part of us. Now, how do we do that? Um, we do that through two ways. He, he outlines two things. Number one, by understanding that we are not able to win the battle on our own. I am not able to win the battle on my own. Um, we, we looked at this from two different angles, right? We looked at this logically, and we looked at this experientially, right? Logically, if we were able to deal with our own sin, why did Jesus have to die on the cross for us? Does it make sense? The Bible says, um, says, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. If, if I could defeat my sin, why did Jesus have to die? Um, I can't defeat my sin. I can't deal with my sin. So what does Jesus do? He comes down and he deals with it for me, right? So the first step to dealing with this dark side is admitting that we can't do it on our own. Some things are not a do-it-yourself project. Have you, ever, have you ever been over to somebody's home and they've remodeled and they said, I did it myself. And you think to, my, and you think to yourself, I can tell. Right? Some things are not a do-it-yourself project, right? Let's say that um, you have a toothache and it's been bothering you for a couple of weeks and your husband says, you know what? I saw like an at-home dentistry kit. What I'm going to do is I'm going to buy that on Amazon and we're going to fix it ourselves. How many of you are going to sign up for that? No, it's not a do-it-yourself project, right? You need help. You need to Take it to the expert. Jesus is the expert of sin, right? He knows how to deal with sin. What did he do? He died on the cross on our behalf. He's able to empower us to fight this old nature. We also talked about, you know, look at your lives. Just look at your own personal experience. How well have you done on your own with dealing with your sin? How did that work for you? Can we, through our own willpower, battle our sin? The answer is no. However, the Bible says that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? I can, through the power of Christ, deal with my issues. Now, this week, um, I, I want to continue what we're, we're, we're talking about, right? I want to continue our... Our, um, our exploration of dealing with the old nature, right? Um, last week I ended by making the final point that the way that we deal with our old nature is by creating in our hearts an expectation that Jesus is coming through. Um, we, 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 like, we, I, I made the point that Jesus is not like Alexander the Great, who was a great man, right? We don't call him Alexander the Okay, right? We don't say Alexander the meh, 
He's Alexander the Great. He did great things. But he's dead. He was a great general. He was a great um, strategist. Right? But he's dead. However, Jesus is alive. Right? Jesus is a real person. And so one of the ways that we, we fight this sin is by dealing with the fact that we need to expect Jesus to show up. Jesus is not like Uncle Pookie, who is unreliable. How many of you have an unreliable Uncle Pookie? Right? Somebody in their family who you just can't trust. Right? You cannot rely on them. Hey, I need you to help me move. I'll help you move, and you're like, I'm holding my breath. Jesus will always come through, right? Today, I want, I want to extend this thinking, and I want to talk about what to do when you fail. Jesus has died on the cross for our sins, right? He's given us a new nature, right? We are freed from the bondage of sin. And this means right now that we, as Adrian Rogers would say, we sin as much as we want to. The problem is, is we want to sin a lot. Again, because sin is fun. We are going to fail. So the question is, what do we do when we fail? Now notice I said when. I didn't say if. You are going to mess up. Um, and by the way, you're not just going to mess up on a small scale. You're going to mess up in ways that are breathtaking. Um, you're, you're, you're going to do things that are unexplainable, right? Um, people will ask you, why did you do that? And you will be able to, with all honesty, say, I don't know why I did it. I just did it. So what do we do after we fail? Now here, I want to um, take a moment and pause and express my gratitude that we serve a merciful God, right? One of my favorite descriptions of God is that he is rich in mercy. It says that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, which means that he has more than enough mercy. I want, I want you to contrast God who is rich in mercy with me. Am I merciful? Well, it depends on who you are. Can you describe me as rich in mercy? I mean, I'm merciful, but there's a limit. Right? Um, you might describe me as mercy poor. There are times where I don't have enough mercy. Some of you are better than me. Some of you are doing okay in mercy-wise, right? Some of you have more than enough mercy, but God says that he is rich in mercy. That means he's able to be merciful to everybody on the face of the planet and still have enough mercy and still have more than enough. He is his mercy is inexhaustible, which means that I can come to him when I fail. How many of you know somebody that if you fail, you probably better avoid them? Like, yeah, I know I messed up. I know I did something wrong. Can you just cut me a break? But they won't, will they? Why? Because they're not rich in mercy. 
But however, however, God is rich in mercy. So today, I, I want to talk about three things that we need to do when we fail, right? We are going to fail, right? But thanks be to God, he is rich in mercy, and he is there for us when we fail. So the first thing we need to do is that we need to, this sounds obvious, you're going to say, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. But sometimes the obvious to some people isn't obvious. Have you ever, have you ever dealt with somebody you're like, well, that's obvious, but it wasn't very obvious to them? Right? So the first sentence you're going to be like, well, that's obvious. But is it obvious? The first thing we need to do is that we need to admit that we have fallen. Right? Um, 1 John 1.8 says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now here specifically, John is talking to a group of false teachers who seem to think that, um, that some people didn't have a natural tendency to sin, right? How many of you know by your own personal experience that that is what us professional theologians call baloney, right? Um, all of us sin. John is very plain. He says, if you say that you're not a sinner, you are lying to yourself. Now, the reason I bring this particular passage up here is that it has something to do with the way humans have been thinking since the beginning of time. Um, since the beginning of our faith, there have been people who seek to justify their sin. I didn't fall. This is the reason why I did this sinful thing. I have a perfectly good reason. Right? There, there, there are people who think that they do not need a Savior. There are people who say, well, I have a right to live however I want. There, there are people who think that they have been perfected and therefore have stopped sinning. Now, all of these things are a denial of the truth that stares back at us in the mirror that we are sinners, and that we fail, right? That we are incomplete. Now, it has been my experience that humans usually have one of three reactions to when they fail. Number one, they pretend like they didn't fall at all, right? How many of you have ever been in public, and you see somebody doing something, and they fall? And they get up real quick because they're embarrassed and like, I didn't fall. Nothing happened here. That is, what, 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 what does this look like spiritually? The people who pretend like they didn't fall, these are people that have grown callous to the sin of their lives. And they refuse to admit their need of repentance. What does this look like? Well, it looks like the progressive Christian who has become comfortable in their worldliness, right? Um, their lives and testimonies have been stained by the love of this world, and they have become friends with the world, causing them not to acknowledge their sin. How many of you know a progressive Christian who is in sin right now, but they refuse to acknowledge their sin as sin? What have they done? They've fallen and they've, re and they've refused to admit that they have fallen, haven't they? This also looks like the bitter conservative Christian 
who's constantly pointing out the sin in the progressive Christian's life by simultaneously committing atrocious sin themselves. How many of you know Brother Plank Eye? Right? He has a giant log in his eye, and he's constantly pointing out the speck in your own eye. What's this man's problem? This man's problem is he's fallen but refuses to admit it. Both of these examples that I've just given are people who refuse to look in the mirror. There are people who have fallen, however, refuse to admit it. Another reaction to a fall is some people fall, however, they just refuse to get back up. The second reaction is people who have fallen, they acknowledge that they have fallen, but they just give up. They quit. They, they, they say to themselves and to everyone who is willing to listen to them, right, um, I'm too far gone. Why bother? Right? That's Brother Eeyore or Sister Eeyore. Woe is me. I'm fallen and I can't get up. The third group of people, who people who fall, they acknowledge their fall and they ask for help. They fall, they acknowledge their fall, and they ask for help. This third group, this third reaction, uh, is, is the person who freely admits their mistakes, and then what do they do? They seek help from God and others to get back up. However, this will not happen if you do not admit that you have fallen. Um, some of us have fallen and we've hurt ourselves critically, but we think, well, it's just a flesh wound. I just put a Band-Aid on it. So what do we do? We put a Band-Aid on it with um, a little retail therapy, right? We put a Band-Aid on it with maybe a trip to the bar. We put a Band-Aid on it with vacation, right? Not only do we need to admit that we have fallen, we need to move on to the second point, right? We need to agree with God about our sins, right? The Bible says, if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The very next verse says this. It says, if we confess our sins, 1 John verse 1, 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive, our, forgive us our sins. Now, the term confess here means to agree with God about our sin. You see, our problem is, is what we mentioned last week, most of us really don't see our sin as all that bad. I mean, of course, nobody's perfect, and I make mistakes, but my sin is not as bad as Miss Pat's. Oh, my soul, the things that Brother Plez tells me. He's like, oh, you won't believe what Miss Pat's doing. Like, we say, well, of course, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. Yeah, I, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. Right? And so we make the, we make the excuse, well, I, I'm, I'm just, you know, nobody's perfect. So when we, 
when we don't see our sin as serious as God sees it, what do we do? We are minimizing our sin. And when we minimize our sin, we minimize our Savior. When we talk about our small sin, we are saying that grace is cheap. I want you to think about the price of your sin. I want you to think about the price of just one of your sins. The price of one of your sins is eternity in hell. It's either eternity hell or the death of the Son of God. Jesus came to earth and he stood in your place and he took the hell of all eternity for you. That's what your sin costs. And when we say that my sin is small, what we're saying is what Jesus did was small. When we fail to agree with God and what God has to say about our sin, we leave the door open to fall into the same sin again. When we say to ourselves, well, it's not that big a deal, we give ourselves permission to compare our sin, which to our mind is not that big a deal, to the sin of someone else. Like my sin, it's not that big a deal. Ah, but again, look at what Miss Pat is doing. This keeps us from seeing our sin as serious. And this keeps us from repenting and turning back to God. So the first thing we need to do is what? We need to admit that we have fallen, right? The second thing we need to do, we need to agree with God about our sin. The third thing we do, and the final thing we need to do, is we need to trust that God will forgive us. Sometimes when we do something wrong and we ask God to forgive us, we just don't feel forgiven. So what do we do? We try to work our way back into God's good graces. Like you're, you're already coming to one Bible study, and so what do you do? You know what? I'll go to an extra Bible study. Why? Because I feel bad for what I did. Um, I'll read an extra chapter of the Bible. Why? Because I feel bad for what I did. I need to work my way back into good grace and God's good graces. God, thankfully, is not like me. If you wrong me, it takes me a while to forgive you. Right? Are you the same way? Well, no. Yeah, you are. Like, I still remember what you did to me. And I will still look at you with the side eye until you make it right with me. But God is not like that. All we have to do is confess. Like we do not have to work our way into God's good graces because we feel guilty. Once we confess, the Bible says that God removes our transgressions. Right? He says, he removes them as far as the east is from the west. Psalms 103, verse 12. Um, he says, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, it says that he remembers our sins no longer. How many of you, that does not describe you? I still remember the sins of my friend Tyrone back from when I was eight. 
Like he, he tricked me one time and I was like, I remember that and I won't forget. I remember the sin of my friend Jonathan Hunter. Like one time we were playing hide and seek in the church and he gets found and then he tells the person looking where I am. I, didn't, I don't forget about that. I didn't forget about that, Jonathan Hunter, if you're listening. In fact, every time I see him, I bring that up. Hey, remember that time we were playing hide and seek in the church and you told um, Brother John where I was? Remember that time? God is not like that. Once we admit that we have fallen and we come to him and we agree with him about our sins, the Bible says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, right? It's not up to us to work our way back in to God's good favor. It is completely an act of grace on God's part. Right? The Bible says, again, 1 John 1 verse 9, it says that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, here's what always intrigues me whenever I read this passage of Scripture. Why does John say that God is faithful and just to forgive us? How is he just in overlooking sin? Do we deserve forgiveness? No. If we deserve forgiveness, there would be no need for forgiveness, right? Yet God forgives. How is he able to forgive and remain just? Now, our society is facing this same dilemma right now. How do we seek justice and remain merciful? Many of you have noticed our culture's sudden interest in something called social justice. <laughs> like we're just gonna assume that that was the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and some of you needed to hear whatever that was. How many of you have noticed our culture's sudden interest in something called social justice? Um, how, like, they're, 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 we have millions of people who are pointing out all the problems in our nation, and their only solution seems to be condemnation. How many of you have noticed that? The Christian answer to this dilemma is the gospel. What does the gospel do? The gospel looks us square in the eye and exposes us for who we are. Who are we? We're sinners. And then offers me a solution to my problem, which is what? God's grace. You see, your problem is a sin problem. God's solution is the gospel. What is wrong with society? Sin. What is the solution? God's grace. Right? Because God's forgiveness is based on what Jesus has done on our behalf, God can at the same time be both just and merciful. What does my sin demand and what does my sin cry out for? It cries out for justice and it cries out for judgment. What was God's solution? He puts himself in my place 
and he takes my judgment, and he takes my justice. However, some of us still struggle with feelings of guilt, don't we? It's here that we need to remind ourselves that our forgiveness is based on an objective reality. An objective reality. Now, how many of you remember, I always make the distinction between objective truth and subjective truth, right? Subjective truth is truth that is just true true to me, right? For instance, I might say that Bluebell ice cream is the best ice cream in the world. Well, that's just true to me. You might say another kind of ice cream is better. Some truths are only true to you, but there is an objective truth that is true for everyone. Objective truths are things like two plus two equals four. Objective truths are things like George Washington crossing the Delaware. The the truths like um, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. These things happened in history. Objective truths are two plus two equals four. These things are true for everyone. Now, question, are there ever days where you feel like, you know what, I just don't feel like two plus two equals four? Like, I just feel down today, and I feel like two plus two equals 75. Are are there days where you feel like, I just don't feel as if George Washington crossed the Delaware? Well, it doesn't matter what you feel. Those things happen. And your forgiveness is based on such a historical truth. The fact that Jesus came to earth. He came to earth in history. He died in history. He rose again in history, proving that he is God. This means that your forgiveness is not about your feeling. Your forgiveness is based on an objective truth. It doesn't matter if you feel forgiven you are. Because the Bible says that God is just to forgive you. I'm reminded of a song. It goes like this. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into the sea without bottom or shore, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam, What father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. He stood neath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. I'm here to tell you today that your sin is big. Your sin is It's gigantic, but God's mercy is more. You will fail. It's going to happen. But as long as we acknowledge that we have fallen, right? As long as we agree with God about our sin, and as long as we go to him in repentance and trust, he will forgive us. Praise the Lord. I'll pray and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for everything you've done for us. I pray that you help us all to realize that we are forgiven. Help us to walk in this forgiveness. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.